It's that literally what God allowed him to be able to do is to see life accurately like God sees it. Both in his time and even into the future, and I would say even this, there's even references to how he was able to see things in the past. And all these sermons were gathered and recorded, and we have them today. And, and one of the things that I, I hope you've seen in reading Isaiah is how when they're fashioned and formed, it's full of poetry and prose and prayers and all of it put together in such a way that, that I hope you've seen Isaiah differently than maybe you, you'd seen it before. But at the core of what we've been trying to do, and, and, and this is where we've been going for the last three weeks, is we've been trying to kind of look at Isaiah in the last, specifically 56 to 66. Now, 1 through 55, what it is, is it's, it's, he's laying out everything, and then in 56 through 66, he's going to do a theological reflection on everything that, that's been put there. Now, in this theological reflection, it's put together in a chiasm. Again, the word chiasm is not a disease. You don't have to take a pill for it. That's not what it is. A chiasm is a way in which they used to write in old, right? So the way that they wrote in some ways the Iliad and the Odyssey, they used to actually take the time, unlike we do today, to craft things together so that you would, you would use it. There was a poetic way of me remembering and being able to recall. That's how they would pass on information. But it's put together in a chiasm. At the very center of it is it's all about a kingdom that's coming. And more specifically, this whole letter has been talking about a king that's going to arrive with this kingdom. And we know, again, spoiler alert, that's Jesus. Now, where we're going to be today, we've worked our way out, and we're going to be on the very outside, and we're going to talk about more specifically in this chiasm, this idea that God intends to form a covenant family of people from all different backgrounds, of all different races. It's going to be men. It's going to be women. It's going to include different abilities. But the idea about this kingdom that I want you to see is that no one is to be excluded. No one. Now, this becomes important because this is going to land, especially at the very end of it. I believe actually what happens throughout time amongst God's people without realizing it, we begin to put up barriers to the world experiencing God. Again, we don't mean to. It's what the Pharisees did and the Sadducees did. It's what churches have done all throughout the last 2,000 years. We don't mean to throw up barriers, but God wants us to understand that there is to be no barrier, that every human being can know their creator, they can experience their redeemer, and this is really what he's going to try to get at today. Now, as a point of reference, and again, this is great art. And don't be wowed by it. I don't want anybody to stumble to think, oh, I wish I was as good of an artist as Todd, what you're about to see here. But you have to remember where Isaiah is coming from when he's writing about end times things. He's writing from his point of view. And in his point of view, especially when we live or look at the prophets and the ones that are looking into the future, they weren't concerned with when. We as Americans are always concerned with when. They, he was not concerned with when. He was looking into the future, and one of the things that he saw was this first coming, this suffering servant that was eventually also going to come a second time, which was going to be the warrior servant. And that's what we talked a little bit about last week. He wasn't concerned about when. He just wanted us to know on the landscape of where everything was coming, there would be a suffering servant who would come the first time to deal with the sin of humanity, to open and pave a way for humanity to come to him. But one day, this warrior servant would return, and he would return. And the idea that we talked about last week was with wrath. But in the middle of all of it is this group of people, his people, that we call the church. And this is what Isaiah is seeing. Now, for some people, they've walked up to me and said, I think this is a good idea, but I don't quite get it. So let me show you a picture. This one's not a great picture, but let me just show it to you. This picture is of me up in, in Wyoming in the Wind River Range, and I was backpacking and climbing back in what's called the Titcomb Basin. 
Now, from that particular perspective, I'm about 200 yards or so, so maybe about an eighth of a mile away from the guy who was taking my picture. But you can see on the forefront some rocks right in front of him, me behind it, and then just a series of peaks after it. And you can't really tell distance exactly. You know kind of how things are fitting together. But it just, this picture just kind of shows this grandscape of the Titcom Basin. What Isaiah is doing is just showing you the grand landscape of what God is about ready to do. And he's not concerned with how far away these things are. He just wants us to know that these things are coming as the midst of being able to encourage us. In fact, that was kind of our point from the first week. And, and this is a really important one is that we were trying to drive home the idea that if you can see the future kingdom, if you can see the king rightly, then what you're going to be able to do is you're going to be able to sustain your life through anything. And this is a whole major point of the New Testament. Seeing the future is important to me living now. But in seeing that future reality, here's one of the things we have to get into our mind. He's also trying to answer the question because we don't want to come back into a sinful world, a world that's chaotic and falling apart, a world that's broken. So how does God cleanse his good world of evil? And so we learned last week that one of the ways was through God's wrath. He came, and specifically as this servant warrior, and his wrath is a steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. God is not going to quit until at the very end, all evil has been eliminated, sin, Satan, death, everything. He's not going to quit. But for those of us now, though, in this time, the beauty is there's still a message out there that Jesus Christ dealt with evil. And we sang this song today. I don't know if you caught this little part. But in it, he says this statement. Till on that cross as Jesus died, look at this, the wrath of God, what? Was satisfied. For every sin in him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live, I live. In other words, there's a message. You don't have to experience the wrath of God. Jesus Christ has bore that. Now that's when all of us as believers, we see the grand King Jesus dealing with evil and those of us that know him know that we no longer live under the condemnation of God because of the powerful work of Jesus. But that doesn't mean we still don't have a work to do. See, the other thing that Isaiah sees in that scope of things is not just this grand warrior servant and not just this suffering servant who are the same thing, but he now sees these other servants that are going to join God. And this is really, as he comes to the very end of it, he's looking at not only the people of that time, but I believe also looking at the people of our time. And if you caught it, I've kept saying over and over throughout, this is our time. So then we better ask the question, if this is our time, and this is what we've called to, and this is the vision Isaiah is seeing, then what is it that we're supposed to do? And I'm glad you asked in the back of your head, man, Todd, I was just begging you to know, what are we supposed to do to join God? And here's Isaiah's answer. You ready for this? It's one verse. Thus says the Lord, I love that. Right, it'd be one thing if it was like, thus says the Todd, right? He'd be like, nah, who cares? But it's thus says the Lord, listen to this, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. After looking at everything, he says, this is what I'm calling you to do. Now, for some of you, you're looking and going, that's it. And that's why we're going to unpack this thing to try to understand what it is that God's called us to be and to be about. Now, one of the first things you have to realize is notice he doesn't say, keep justice and do righteousness in order to be saved. He doesn't say that. He says, your salvation is already coming. So in other words, it's not somehow that I'm 
earning this in any kind of a way. He's just saying, look, my salvation for you is coming. Now with this salvation that's coming, I want you to do two specific things. And there's two commands in this that we're gonna try to kind of craft together to see exactly what Isaiah is saying. Now he says in there, the first one, keep justice and do righteousness. Now for a few weeks, and I'm not gonna kind of beleaguer this, Chris took a long time kind of unpacking for us and Christian did this idea of justice or maybe another way of putting it is, is how we provide an atmosphere for others to experience the restorative work of God. He kept talking about this idea of punitive and restorative, that God wants us in this idea of justice to be a provision to the world in which they can be restored to their God. That's, that's definitely what this idea of justice is talking about. The more difficult one to understand, though, is what is this idea of righteousness? Now, generally what we try to do with righteousness is we talk about it maybe as that I'm, I'm right, I'm made right. But actually, this isn't just being made right. There's something grander that I think that Isaiah is arguing for when he talks about this idea of righteousness throughout the book of Isaiah. When you craft it together, I'm going to walk through some verses just to allow you to see this. He's not talking about just being made right. He's talking about this grand, glorious purpose of God. So let me put it to you this way. We are to understand the grand, glorious purpose of God and then to join him in this world and bringing about an atmosphere of restoration to the world. In other words, what he says, what I want you to do is, in light of everything that I've said, I want you to understand my grand, glorious purposes and I want you to join me in this world, being able to create this atmosphere of restoration for God. That's what I want you to do. Now let's see if that's true. Let's work this through. In Isaiah 117, you can just, you can see this for a little bit. He, he talks about it this way. He says, I want you to learn to do what is right. In other words, this idea of righteous comes through. I want you to learn, and the way I would maybe put it again, is I want you to learn my purposes. And then I want you to learn how to promote justice. I want you to learn how to create that atmosphere. He explains a little further to give the press reason to celebrate, take up the cause of the orphan, defend the rights of the widow. In other words, that's what I want you to be able to do. Now, it's all kind of caveated in this idea, and this word light is going to become important to where we're going today. I want you to come walk with me, he says, in my light, and I want you to learn how it is that are my purposes and what I'm doing in this world so you can restore me, join me in the restoration of the world that I've created. Now, Chris kind of talked about this a little bit, is that we've got to understand the heart of God. Now, one of my huge concerns for us as we read the Bible sometimes is we read it like we're trying to find these key principles to kind of live by or, or we're trying to find these, you know, a verse a day because that will keep the devil away or we're trying to do these different things when we read the Bible. Why do we read the Bible? We read the Bible because we're trying to figure out who is this God that has created this entire world? What does he say about himself? Who is he rightly? How do I understand him? And not only understand him, but how is it that now he's called me to live? Not how do I define my life, but how do I now define my life out of who he says he is and what he's doing and why he created me? See, the problem with sometimes reading the Bible for principles is what we do is we begin to rob a group of principles from the Bible. We put them together however we want them, and then we kind of justify the life that we live, saying, see, I can put a scripture and verse to the life that I live, missing the fact that all those verses are jumbled together to make your life the best life now, not the life that God's called us to live. In other words, he's saying, live the life I've given you. Don't sell out. 
I'm calling you to walk with me and I'm calling you to look at me. I am the one who understands justice or how to bring this world into restoration. I understand what my purposes are. Walk with me. And in case we miss it, I love it. He says that a king will reign. And by the way, kind of spoiler alert, this is Jesus. There will be a king who will come one day that will show you what it is to reign in righteousness. And not only that, there will be these princes that will come that will rule in justice, which by the way, I think these are all his people that are coming after him. In other words, I'm going to give the world models of what it's supposed to look like. So who's this king? Well, it's a king that we talk about from the book of like Luke or even Matthew 1. This king that's going to come, he's a child, he's a son that's given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, of peace, there will be no end. Of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it. And look at this, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this in other words king jesus is coming and in coming he says i will create this kingdom in fact he's creating such a kingdom that not only will he be this way but look at this he will dwell on high and he will fill zion which we talked about a couple weeks ago is just god's people with justice and righteousness that the intent of Jesus coming to this world wasn't just to save you from hell. We've got to get it out of our minds that that's why Jesus came. No doubt, it's not less than that. He did come to rescue us from the coming wrath to come, but it is so much more. I think the church is bored out of its mind because we've settled for so little. When Jesus Christ came, he came to heal the sick, to cause the blind to see. Sure, but there was something even bigger than that. He came that the world might know that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he's setting all things straight. And through the cross and the resurrection, he defeated everything that stood against God. And one day, King Jesus is coming back to reign and to rule and to create a world that humanity has desired for all time. Isn't that awesome? Don't settle for just escaping hell. Oh, I'm so sick of that. God is offering so much more. And he's calling us to experiencing it. See, this is what I think in Isaiah 32. He's saying, look, this justice will dwell in the wilderness amongst the ideas. My people, the righteous will abide in a fruitful field. And look at this. The effect of righteousness will be peace. The result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forevermore. In other words, when God's people come into this, and here's that word peace, it will be shalom. I love that word. Shalom. For the longest time, I only saw it as a group of Jewish people that would look at each other and say, Shalom. But it's so much more. God's people joining King Jesus in this world, bringing about this justice and righteousness to bear because that is the heart of God. When they come into places, what do they bring? They bring Shalom. What is that? Well, it's way more than just the absence of strife. In other words, when God's people come into this, they make things right. And this is the word I would use. This word shalom means wholeness and rightness. And not only that, but completeness. In other words, God's people joining God in his purposes, providing this atmosphere of restoration so that people might be caused to flourish in the intent to which God created them. That means we look on people differently. <laughs> 
few weeks ago, my wife and I went on a train, and we decided to go into inner city L.A., right? And, and I've always heard people telling me, oh, the homeless problem in L.A., the homeless problem in L.A. This whole thought was in the back of my mind, and as we were ushered into L.A., and I told you guys this a few weeks ago, we decided to go see MacArthur Park. I don't know why we went to go MacArthur Park, but I just was like, let's go to MacArthur Park. The brokenness. The sadness. Even in some ways, there was a chaos to it. But looking out amongst that mass of people that was sitting there in what we call our homeless problem is the opportunity for God to come to bear and his purposes in that particular world that this group of people that we've so written off and we've just put off to go live in tents and exist kind of in this little world that they've had, this whole world being offered the opportunity of restoration to be the people that God's intending them to be. It's seeing our kids that way and our spouses that way and our friends that way, seeing people with, and this is the word I would use, the potential that God has placed within them. I think when he's arguing this idea of righteousness and justice, it's not just doing right things and nice things for people. It is seeing the intent of God, diving in with the greatest message ever, the gospel, and then watching as people come to life in ways you never imagined. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what I'm talking about because when you embrace the gospel, everything begins to change for you. You begin to come to life. On the back of my head, I'm thinking, well, gosh, who wouldn't want that? Now, this next verse was so confusing for me for the longest time. I like the first part about it. You know, I, I, we're going we're to be looking in the net. Okay, who wouldn't want now this reality, this radical reality of God's purposes coming to bear for the restoration of people so that they might be able to flourish and be the people God intended them to be? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Look at 56.1, and this is out of the Net Bible, because I, I like the way they translate this. This is what the Lord says, promote justice, do what is right, for I'm ready to deliver you, I'm ready to vindicate you openly. What? Why do you have to, like, deliver me? People are going to want this message. Why do you need to vindicate me openly? Who's not going to want to hear the fact that God and his purposes has created a means for you to experience restoration and to flourish being the people that God intended you to be? And if you've ever shared the gospel with people before, you know that that message is not readily accepted. But God says, that's okay, I have you. But why don't they accept it? Well, this word light becomes very important for us to understand this. And I want you to see this because on one level, sometimes we're surprised when we go share this good news of Jesus who came and he radically defeated sin, Satan, and death. And he created this world now to know him and experience him in incredible ways. Why don't people want to hear this? Why do they reject it? Well, in 51.4, he starts to put it together. Watch this. Pay attention to me, my people. That'd be all of us. Listen to me, my people. For I will issue a decree, I will make my justice a light. Here's our word, light to the nations. I'm ready to vindicate. Well, what, what do you have to vindicate me for? I'm ready to deliver. What do you have to deliver me for? I will establish justice amongst the nations. I'm going to cause now my good intents and purposes to cause people to flourish. The coastlands wait patiently for me. They wait in anticipation for the revelation of my power. Look up at the sky, look at the earth below, for the sky will dissipate like smoke, the earth will wear out like clothes, its residents will die like gnats. I, wow. 
The deliverance I give is permanent. The vindication I provide will not disappear. But why, God? Why do you have to vindicate? Why do you have to rescue me? Listen to me. You know what is right. In other words, you know my purposes. You people are aware of my law. Now watch this. Don't be afraid of the insults of man. Don't be discouraged because of their abuse. What? You ready for a truism? We have the greatest message in the world that most people will reject. Why? Why? Don't they see, Isaiah 66, that this world and its system is slowly becoming a graveyard forever? Don't they see that every aspect of how we find vindication and of how we find deliverance is just the end of it is, is a waste of time, that it's slowly dying. It's, it's like these clothes that are going out and like this wool that's being eaten by a moth. Don't they understand? We have the greatest message ever. Why? I think the answer is this. Anytime this message comes upon the world, whether we're talking about Israel, whether we're talking about the United States, the clash of it is it's a clash of world systems. It's a clash of religious systems. It's a clash of philosophical systems. And at the, end of this, at the end of it is this reality that every human being on this planet is trying to save themselves and they can't. Their only salvation is Jesus. And we don't like that. Israel didn't like it. Israel, the very people of God who were given the oracles of God, the ones that saw his mighty hand, they saw them cross the Red Sea, they watched as he provided food in the desert, they watched as God over and over showed his powerful hand. At the end of the day, they didn't trust God to deliver them, and what did they do? They created shalom with the Egyptians, they created shalom with the Assyrians, they created shalom with the Babylonians, and God is saying, no, those things can't provide your deliverance, I'm the only one. Yeah, but God, you don't understand. My shalom is my 401k. Anybody else feel like the economy might... My shalom is my marriage. My shalom, my deliverance, where I find my peace is my family. My shalom is my job. My shalom is my nest egg that I'm setting aside. My shalom, my peace, and, and my final content, the thing that is going to be my rescue and my salvation is all these other things to which God helps us to understand at any moment. He can remove those completely and cause them to become nothing. But the one thing that is sure of all time is God and who he is in this world. He is the only one that can save. And God is not only looking at the world, but he's looking at his people and asking, do you trust me? Honestly. Do you trust me? I think this is one of the hardest things for us as Christians. Do you trust me in your marriage? No, no, no. I, I, I think we need to read another book. I think we need to go to someone. Not that those are bad in themselves, but I've watched so many people's marriage fall apart because they've read way too many books and they've gone to way too many seminars and they've missed the fact that those things don't save. Only God saves. My wife and I were wrestling this through. I mean, does anybody ever feel like you're a, you're a bad parent? Anybody? Okay, just me. Okay, this is my confession time. Man, I feel like sometimes, right, I've got the whole age thing figured out. Like, I'm, oh, I've got two-year-olds figured out. And then I got two-year-olds figured out, but then they become three, and then I got to figure out three-year-olds. 
And then the next one comes along and I'm like, okay, cool. I got two-year-olds figured out, but I've only got two-year-olds figured out in that kid's life. I don't have this one. And then they keep aging and then they get into their 20s and then you definitely don't have anything figured out. Why? Because we can't save our kids. Only God saves. We have this wrong thinking that we can save our kids. Let me just take all the pressure off you. Not that we're called to not cause our families to flourish and be faithful to our kiddos. But you can't save your kids. You can't keep them from drugs as much as you think you can. You can't keep them from the ills of the internet as much as you think you can. Now again, are we to be faithful? Of course. But ultimately, there is only one that will save my kiddos and your kiddos and our friends and our spouses, and that is God, period. Nothing else. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this constant beckoning to God's people, do you trust me? Do you trust me to live my purposes? Do you trust me that in living my purposes and and living in such a way that you cause other people to be able to find restoration and flourishing, do you understand that that is what I'm calling you to do and all these other things are merely the means by which we join him in what he's doing? Do you trust me? I think this is one of the biggest questions that we as Christians have to answer every day. Do we trust God? Do I trust Trump? No. Do I trust the Republicans or the Democrats? No. Do I trust the systems and everything around me? Ultimately, no. Nothing else promises salvation, only Yahweh the King. Now he's bringing us to this point. It becomes so important in bringing us this way because he wants us to understand that this trust is an active trust that has with it some, some realities to it. Now look at 56.2. Let me just, let me walk this through this. Now he's going to talk about this idea of blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds fast. Here's the active part. I want you to now trust me in this. I want you to now do this and I want you to hold fast to it. Now look what he throws in here next. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hands from doing any evil. Again, why is the Sabbath in here? What does anything with having a Saturday where I set it apart have anything to do with what God's talking about? And I'm glad you asked that. I think it gets to the core of what it means to trust him. A lot of times we don't understand what a Sabbath is, and so oftentimes what we do is a Sabbath is not doing any activity. That's actually not the case. He even tells us in here, it's not that it's not doing any activity, it's that you don't profane it, you don't do evil. That's what I want you not to do. In fact, a Sabbath has everything to do with active rest, which seems so oxymoronic, but it's active rest where I'm carrying out the justice and righteousness. In other words, Sabbath is just this weird paradox of how in the world do I do active rest? So what does that mean? What's the Sabbath? Well, the thing about a Sabbath is it's a weekly celebration of God's perfect creation and it established all the way back in Genesis 2. It has everything to do with what it means to trust God. In fact, by the time we get to Isaiah 66, it's not only about what God has done in the past, but actually there's a concept of Sabbath that we're going to experience even into the new kingdom. This reality that now in this life, whenever we practice Sabbath, we're not only looking backward, but we're looking forward to new creation. We're believing God from beginning to end that he has us and he's in absolute control. He is sovereign. He's control of all things. 
In other words, now bless you. The Sabbath is this kind of rehearsal, this dress rehearsal of what it's going to be like in new creation to trust him. And I would even say this, this is what the Pharisees never got because they missed the essence or the heart of why we have the Sabbath and we replaced it with an idea of this outward form of the Sabbath. They thought that by doing the right things, by walking through the principles of keeping them, that they were keeping the Sabbath. But when Jesus came, he's like, no, you missed the heart of it. You've missed the essence of it. They came to him, remember this in Matthew 22, and they said, tell us the greatest law because they wanted to know, we want to know what's the outward form we need to keep. And he's like, oh, you've missed the essence of it, the heart of it. It's that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbors yourself. That's what the law is about. That's the essence of it. That is the heart of it. At the core of, I think, what he's trying to say is, is that as I practice the Sabbath or as I learn what it means to trust God, I'm declaring that my life is no longer the status quo. I've come under God's good care in my life. I'm living by his good purposes. I'm looking forward to and living for new creation. In other words, he's saying, make your life about trusting me. Do you trust me? Do you trust me with everything? Do you trust that I'm an all-sufficient God who controls all things and will provide for you manna or I'll provide for you quail if you need it as you walk through the desert? Do you trust that I intensely love you? Like I was wrestling through this the other day, man. One of the hardest things for me to grapple with for the longest time was the idea of the Father's love for me. I don't know if anybody's ever struggled with that before. God doesn't just kind of love me. He loves me intensely. But not only does he love me, but in this idea of Sabbath, we rest from our own strategies for self-preservation and learn what it means to just rest on him and live for him. And if you don't practice the Sabbath, let me just say, because you're thinking it's an old covenant reality, God put the Sabbath in place before the old covenant. The Sabbath has been in place for all time. There is a constant need that we have to learn that our God is all-sufficient, that he intensely loves us without, no, with, with completely in spite of who we are, and we can rest for all of our strategies to trying to preserve ourselves and trust him alone. That's what Sabbath is. That's the heart and the essence of it. So what's he saying? I think it's very similar to what Jesus was doing when he did the Sermon on the Mount. Right? We, we have the blessed are the poor in verse 3. Then he keeps talking about these blessings. Blessed are you when others revile you. He gets to it and as he puts it all together, he's trying to help us understand, do you trust me? In fact, by the time he gets to Matthew 11, kind of leaving this idea of the Sermon on the Mount, he even says this statement to him, do you trust me enough that I am the one who you can come to me and all of your, your labor and your heavy laden, you can give them to me and you can rest. You can take my yoke upon you. You can trust me with this for my yoke is easy and light. Do you trust me? But why is that important? I think one of the hardest things for us to understand is this difference between the essence and the heart of something and form. I think over time, the church forgets what's the heart of what God's trying to do here. We start making rules for ourselves. We start grabbing biblical principles, like I said before, and putting them together, and we make rules for ourselves. We, we make these rules that have nothing to do with what God's doing or his purposes, and in making those things without realizing it, the church just slowly starts to die. We start to die individually, we start to die corporately, and after a while, this is the way I would say it, who wants that? 
Who wants that when he's called us to be something different? See, in Matthew 5, he calls us this, you are the light of the world. This is what I'm saying. This is so much bigger than avoiding hell. We are the very people of God, a city set in a hill that cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, right? But on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, he's saying, the reason that I want to deal with this evil amongst you, the reason that I want to give you a, a sense of justice, a sense of righteousness, the reason I want you to rest in me is because you are my purpose and my plan you are the light that is going to be displayed into the world you are my plan if anybody in here is a follower of Jesus you are the plan of God that's crazy I would never trust me but yet he says you're it I'm making you my plan Now we're not just trying to deal with sin because, you know, we're trying to get away from the ickiness. We're dealing with sin because we want to shine brightly into this world. The reason we want to learn how it is that we deal with one another in justice is because we want the world to see what justice is supposed to look like amongst us. The reason that we, we, we seek to find hope and the reason we help one another to put rest in God is because as we declare this message to the world and invite him in and they don't find it here, it is going to be a total contrast for people and it will no longer be a light. We as Cornerstone, and this is my prayer for us, that we would be that light. That we wouldn't do church as a game. That we wouldn't just show up and walk through the motions. That we wouldn't just somehow show up and read our Bibles and go through Bible studies and, and have nice little neat worship services and pat ourselves on the back. But instead that we would be the people that God intends us to be in and have, we have been for the last 25 or so years that Simi Valley in Southern California in this world might see our good God and glorify our Father who is in heaven. That's what I want for Cornerstone. I don't want to just want to kind of sit up here and do nice things. That's missing going through the form and missing the heart of what we're trying to do in the essence. Let me just put it to you this way. When God looked through time and he saw all of us, he says, this group of people along with all those people in the world that call me God, they're my church. That's why I've said over and over again, don't forget who you are. In fact, if you're an unbeliever sitting here, my hope is, is that we would be a light, a city on a hill that you would watch us and realize we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just as broken as anyone else, but the thing that is contrastingly different than maybe what you've experienced is we have now God in us through the Holy Spirit to be the light that God's called us to be, and that's what I hope you run into. I think that's why he said, come and learn to walk in the light. Now, here's the one last thing I want to throw out there to us. If that's true, then what would stop people from coming to us? Well, there's two groups of people he's going to say that could not come, might not come to us because we're, we're, we're struggling between what is the essence and what's the form. One group he says in there is that they're going to say, oops, I'm in the wrong one. Talk amongst yourself. There we go. Here we go, verse three. There's two groups that he's gonna talk about. One is the foreigner and one's the eunuch, which seems interesting. But he says, let not the foreigner who's joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, I don't belong with them. He also then says, let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. In other words, let not people say they don't belong amongst you. Everyone does. 
For thus says the Lord, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who learn to trust in me and rest in me, who choose, oops, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, who, who walk with me in justice and righteousness. Oh, this thing's going crazy. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons or daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that should not be cut off. In other words, you belong here. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. In other words, those that live in my righteousness and live inside of my justice. These I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted in my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. In other words, you belong. What's he saying? He's saying, I want you to be the light to the world because I'm gonna call all kinds of people to you. And the way that I would say it is, is outcast. When Jesus Christ came to this world, you can see that he called outcast to himself. He called to him different people like women. Now you might go with me here for a second. You're not outcast, but at that time, women were. He saw women differently. He called them daughters and called them daughters of Abraham in the book of Luke. He, he saw them as ones that were invited into the kingdom. It wasn't an all boys club. He looked out at the poor and he treated them with dignity and with respect and saw the fact that they were called to something differently. He was gonna create for them justice to be able to be brought into the family of God. He saw in there the unclean, that oftentimes these unclean would include those that were blind and sick and lame, and even those that had leprosy. He saw them and was with them and touched them and invited them in. Not only them, but he also invited in the drunks and the tax collectors. He invited in the prostitutes. He found all those that didn't seem to belong and invited them into his kingdom. Along with some of these, he also invited in the impressors. The tax collectors were people that hate, they were hated by the Jewish people because they were in cahoots with the Romans. They hated the Romans and even in that, Jesus still invited a Roman centurion into who he was. He provided justice and righteousness. He provided the purposes for God to which they could be brought into restoration and become the people that God intended them to be. He even dealt with racial enemies, not only the Romans, but he was able to then even craft into his entire story this idea of Samaritans and their belonging as half-breeds even into the kingdom. So what's Isaiah saying? Do that. See, I think this applies to us. I think we're supposed to keep a church in such a way that all can come in. Now, this is hard. I don't know how many of you, again, I, I talked about the Calvary Chapel movement from uh, last time I was here, but one of the stories that I will never forget about Calvary Chapel was in and around Chuck Smith and his inclusion of these group of people called the hippies into what he was doing. He showed up one day at church, and in showing up one day at church, he found a sign on there that basically said, no shoes, no shirts, no entrance. He went there and he took the sign down and he threw it away and he invited all people in to be a part of it, whether or not they had shirts or shoes on, he still brought them in. And one of the reasons that they didn't want these hippies coming off the beach in there is because anybody that surfs in this part of Southern California knows the tar balls that are out there. Well, those tar balls that begin to gather on the feet, these guys would walk in with bare feet and they would leave the tar balls on the carpet, God forbid, as they came in to experience Jesus. He took his stand in that moment and said, I will not allow an obstacle be placed in between somebody coming in to experience God. I think this is what Isaiah is saying. Let the hippies come to me. <laughs> but not just the hippies. 
Let the poor come to me. Let the children come to me. Let women come to me. Let the drunks and the tax collectors, just like some of you were, come to me. Don't put obstacles between us. Now, no doubt, are they going to come and have to encounter a God that Jesus looked at them all the time and said, your sin is your biggest problem. Go your way and sin no more. But are we going to be a church that's a good old boys club? Or are we going to see the value, the, re, the immense value of God in placing women within us as we walk as men who should lead our homes and our churches? Are we going to see the poor differently, not as just handing out food to them, but are we going to see them as ones that God has created and given intent and a purpose to way beyond just showing up at this, but to see them out there? And this is the thing that I saw. When I look out at the homeless population right now, I see people enslaved by drugs and alcohol and mental brokenness. And do we see the fact that Cornerstone is to be a church also for them? Are we see that Cornerstone is to be a church for what we might call the unclean? Right now, I feel like the greatest group of unclean people out there that the church doesn't know what to do with are those within the LGBTQ. And again, I don't even know what new kind of letters go along in that acronym, but we don't know what to do with them. I was dealing with a young man that, that we were talking through and he was just struggling with gender dysphoria and why was it that God made him as a, as a man but he wanted to be a woman on the inside and he was just broken and crying. And there I'm sitting there with this guy crying out and realizing Todd is just as broken as he is. When are we going to look at people and realize that we, on one hand, can't wink at sin, that there's no doubt that, 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 that homosexuality, having sex outside of marriage is no doubt, it's a sin. But at the same time, I believe Jesus wants to save everyone. I think he wants to save those from within the disability community. It's a community that sometimes we struggle and know what to do with, right? And we see them, we don't know how to talk to them. But let me tell you something. This church will never be the church God's created us to be until the disability community is amongst us and serving with us and unleashed to flourish. I believe we're supposed to have people that are conservatives and even liberals. Ever notice that somehow lately Christian equals Republican? God help us. I think we're supposed to experience people that don't agree with us. When I first came to know Jesus Christ, I was a part of a church that rallied all these people. I don't know if you remember this, but you know, everybody was rallying during the 90s to go picket abortion places. And so this one lady kind of got sick of picketing abortion places and she sent a letter to an abortion doctor. And in the letter, she just began to explain that no doubt they disagreed and that she wanted her to come to know Jesus, but that she then looked at her and said, I just want you to know that I love you and I'm desiring for you to know Jesus, dot, dot, dot. And then she put the church's name and the pastor in the bottom. This lady called up the church and said, I need to meet with this dude. Now, Pastor Brian was sitting there wondering, who am I about ready to meet with when this abortion doctor walks in and she slammed the letter on the table and she said, why aren't more Christians like this one? I love people. I think when it comes to racial enemies, we've got to look at those that are Muslim way differently. We have to look across the board at all these realities because what? 
God has called us to step in as a church into the lives of women, to step into the lives of those that are poor, to step into the lives that those we might consider unclean, to step in the lives of those that might view as oppressors, though that might be racial enemies, and to still bring the declarative message to all that our God and his purposes are above all. They've been finding their home for decades inside of the goodness of Jesus Christ, and we're calling you to bend your knee now to this King Jesus so that you might experience hope you might experience transformation you might experience what God has intended that you might now feel the restoration of God and finally be the person that God has intended you to be to be able to flourish in this world and to belong for the day that Jesus Christ is going to come back we have got to be that church that's who we are that's what Isaiah is saying When he's calling us to justice and righteousness, he's saying, open it up, draw them in. I'm gonna bring Billy up with the the worship team and I know we're getting late. And so I'm just gonna say this as we leave. I as a shepherd, I don't want to go through the form and the motions. I just don't. I'm tired of the form and the motions. I'm tired of just kind of the years and years of going through the form and the motions, and it's not that those are bad in of themselves. I want the heart of it, the essence of it. I want to see a church, like I think Cornerstone has been, but I just always believe we can do better. I want to be involved in a church that has all of these problems come into it because we believe that we can bring restoration to bear on people's lives. I want to be a church that looks at those that are young and says there's hope in this, that you don't have to leave the church. I'm sick and tired of those underneath the age of 35 walking away. I think Isaiah, if he were looking at us, would say, this is your time now. This is Cornerstone's time. No more games. No more going through the motions. No more the forms. I think he would say, let's go. And so to all of you, on behalf of the elders and the shepherds of Cornerstone, let me just say this. Let's go. Are you ready? I think we're involved in the greatest thing ever, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not perfect, are we? Because I know some of you, you're you're really not perfect. (laughs) But let's go. In the name of the Father, who in controlling all things and giving us his sufficiency, sent his son, the fully sufficient one, to provide us sufficiency. And then left his Holy Spirit that we might learn what sufficiency is to accomplish his purposes and will on this earth. May God bless you this week as you go and live the greatest message ever of Jesus Christ. Amen? God bless you.